The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. does it mean to you to be a Christian? I realize asking that question sometimes in a public assembly, I know if we ask it in the public streets of our city and such as that, we'd probably get various answers to that question. For example, if you ask someone, what does it mean to be a Christian? They might say to you very quickly, well, that means to be a member of, of a church. I mean, to be a member of some fellowship, some congregation nearby, perhaps around the corner or down the street. And that within itself makes you more of a Christian. It allows you to be one, just being a part of some religious organization. But you know as well as I do, that's not really what makes one a Christian, and so that answer within itself is not actually correct. Someone else might say, well, to be a Christian implies that you uh, keep good morals. You know what is right, you know what is wrong, you try to do that which is right, you try to uh, avoid that which is wrong, and so being a Christian means having good morals and good ethics about you. And there's an extent where Christians should be that way, there's no doubt, but that's not what makes someone a Christian. Go to yet another person, ask them, what makes someone a Christian? And they say, well, you know, uh, being religious, just being spiritual, just being spiritually minded and having your focus put toward some greater good, that makes you a Christian. Of course, we know also that answer would be incorrect. That's not what makes someone a Christian. No, a Christian is that one which is a follower of, a learner of, and someone who is likened to Christ. In Acts chapter 11, verse 26, we find out that these were called Christians first at Antioch. The ones that are being spoken of there are the disciples. Of course, a disciple means to follow after, to learn from. And so those were the ones who were called Christians. We see in the word Christian itself, to bring that definition down to where it ought to be, that implies simply that someone is Christ-like. And so to be a Christian would be Christ-like, to be his disciple, to learn, and even to follow him. Now, when we understand that, we know really what the heart of a true Christian ought to be like, at least I hope that we would. We know what it ought to be that we keep forth in our minds, that we set forth in our minds to do and to say, and how we ought to live. But then I'm also setting in reality. When I understand that many times people who, like the others, would have been named, who would have been members, if you will, of some church, who would have also had good morals about them, who would have also, in that case, been spiritually and religiously minded, I know that those people, some of us included in that, may not really understand what it is to have the true heart of a Christian. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open them with me to the book of Matthew. When you get there, go to Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, I'm going to just basically look at one verse here, and we're going to springboard from it to develop our points but in Matthew chapter 16, we find out that Jesus has come to his own disciples. He's asked them questions about who he was. He's established before them, at least in their minds, that he was going to be building a church. It would be his, his singular church, his possession. He's even come down in verse 21 to the point of speaking unto Peter because he's telling them now about his death and how he's going to be pushed into Jerusalem. And as he's there, he's going to lose his life. And Peter's attempting to stand up for something. He's attempting to tell him uh, that cannot happen. And then in verse 24, that's where we're focused. Matthew 16 and verse 24. And then Jesus said unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Friends, I would say to you this morning that this is the root, 
that makes up the heart of a Christian. He says, if any man will come after me and deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, that's what a Christian is. That's what children of God's do. That's what those who are disciples slash learners slash Christ-like people do. And so I want to help you develop the mind of a Christian. If you don't already have it, or maybe you'll discover things that you ought to improve on. I know I have in just studying, trying to understand this particular text. I want you to look at that first phrase. He says, if any man will follow after me. The first thing we need to keep in mind in order to have the heart of a Christian is this, that we must find our hearts. You say, what do you mean find our hearts? We know where our heart is. Our heart's inside of our chest. It's probably over to the left side. It's probably just a little bit below the breast. And so That's where my heart is. I know, no, 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 find our spiritual hearts. If you look at what the psalmist said, I hope you'll just turn there very quickly. Go over to the book of Psalms. In Psalms chapter 139, look with me, if you will, verse 1 to begin with. He says, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Now you see that, that's in verse 1. You move across and down the page, nearly the end of the chapter in verse 23, he says this, Search me, O God, and know my what? Know my heart, and try me and know my thoughts. Now, what do you mean by that, David? He says, my heart needs to be searched. My heart needs to be known. My thoughts need to be settled and set after God. So I want to ask you two questions, and these are just investigative type questions to allow us to search out our hearts, to know what we really are, inside. Number one, I want to ask you this, very simple. Why are you here today? Why are you here? In this building, gathered together as we're attempting to do throughout this hour and to worship God, why are you here? You see, some people are here, and I know this is the case in various audiences. I know I've been guilty of each of these I'm about to name. Some people are here because of their expectations. You know, they really expect that when they come into a worship service like this, as they gather around the saints, that they're going to really, if you will, get something out of it. They're expecting when they get here that even though they may come in one state, maybe they're down and out, maybe they're, maybe they're kind of sick, at least sick in their minds, and mentally and emotionally, that when they come in and go out of this place, they're going to be uplifted and they're going to really gain something from it. A lot in the religious world are talking more about the religious experience and what they mean is what I have experienced in the worship than they're talking about what God is receiving from the worship. I admit there's an extent, and I'm this way especially on, say, a Wednesday. I've gotten partway through my week. I've been busy probably going and doing more than I probably need to do health-wise or whatever. And it comes time for about Wednesday evening services and generally I'm gone somewhere or here or there teaching a Bible class. And I'll admit, some of those times I walk into those services at 7 p.m. on Wednesday and I'm kind of stepping back and saying, whew, I need to be refreshed. I need to be brought back closer to God. I need to have my burdens lifted for this hour or however long it would be. And there's certainly an extent where we experience something in that way. And where we expect to do that. But friends, if we come before the throne of God in worship as we do on days like today, the Lord's Day and other occasions, we're not here for ourselves. We're not here just because we expect something. Let me ask you this, why are you here? Is it because of your expectations? Secondarily, are you here because you feel like it's your duty? I mean, you feel like this is just what a child of God ought to do on the Lord's Day. 
I mean, you feel like when you wake up on a day like today that it's just a have to, it's just something that you must do. It's just my duty. Why? After all, God died on the cross and God in the body is His Son. He died on the cross. God the Father gave that Son's life for me and it's my duty. I owe it to Him that I would be here. And so that, that sounds about right. I mean, that's pretty much in a nutshell why I'm here on a certain given day. Is that the only reason? I can show you two men, as far as I know, this has not changed. They wouldn't miss a service. These two boys, they wouldn't miss any of the services, whether it be Sunday morning, Sunday night, the Bible class hours, whatever it is. They would come to every night of a gospel meeting. They may even go down the road to a gospel meeting that someone else is hosting because they feel like it's their duty. But if you ask them personally why they're there, they generally say, well, Mama told me to be here. They're in their middle 40s. Well, if I, if I don't come, your mama's going to call and she's going to wonder where we were and she's going to try to correct us and she's going to tell us, you know, it's your duty to be at worship. Sweet woman she is. That's not the reason to worship God. Not our expectations, not our duty. What about this? Are you here because it's a habit? I was blessed. I, I was attending worship services in my mother's womb and from that point forward. I've rarely uh, had to miss, rarely been vacant, if you will, from the pews and from the seats of some church building in, in some location all of my life. And so for me, yes, there is a habitual thing that's taking place. It is the case that if I were to wake up on a Sunday morning and I were not to go to worship or to get to a Wednesday evening uh, about 7 o'clock and not to attend a Bible class, well, I would feel like I, my habits are all out of whack. I'd feel empty. I'd feel like nothing's right. I would feel like I'm in the wrong place. I'm not doing the right thing. But are you only here because it's your habit to be here? Now, there's a biblical sense which that's just true, and we're going to refer to it a little bit later, but Hebrews 10 and verse 25 says, the manner as some is, the idea is that some of these people have gotten into the habit, yes, of attending worship, but that's not the only reason to be here. Are you here because you want to be seen? I doubt that there are very many here that would say that or admit that, but generally speaking, sometimes I'm afraid we are or could be here because we want to be seen. We don't want our seat to be empty. We don't want our neighbors in front or behind or on the other end of the pew not to notice us, not to see us at worship. We don't want to be felt guilty or feel guilty or held accountable for any of that. So it's just easier just to be seen. We make our appearance and maybe we're the most friendly person in the building. We go from pew to pew and, and back door to front door, shaking all the hands, hugging all the uh, ladies and, and kissing all the babies. We just want to be seen. You say, well, that's no reason to be at worship. No. No, we shouldn't expect anything. It shouldn't just be our duty. It shouldn't be our habits. It shouldn't be so that we could be seen. Someone says, well, I'll give you one then. It's because we love the church. We love the fellowship of the church. That's a great reason for worshiping. You know, to have that camaraderie, to be able to come together, to be able to spend time together in that fellowship, which is another way to commune together. That's a picturesque word that means to lock, interlock arms with one another, to stand together, fight together. And all that's true. We need to do that. But you know as well as I do, I know non-Christians who enjoy the fellowship sometimes more than the Christians do. And they make it no more than some sort of social event. You say, well, if I can't be here, if I should not be here, 
because of my expectations, because of my duty, because of my habits, because of me wanting and desiring to be with the church. Why should I be here? There's one reason. You can boil it all down, you can pour everything else in this pot, but there's one reason. I'm here because I love the Lord. That's all. Oh, everything else could back up into that. Everything else would be the case. Yes, yes, I would feel like I expect to enjoy uh, the time that I can praise God and give worship unto Him in song and through prayers and such as that. I can learn of Him through preaching and teaching and, and study. There's no doubt about that. There's also no doubt in my mind that it is my duty to be here. God did die for me. The very least I could give back. It's just a time of worship for Him. I could make it my habit. I could enjoy the fellowship. But I can do none of that save I love the Lord. Number one, find your heart. Find your heart by asking the question, why am I here? Second, why is the church here? I mean, why does the church exist as it does, as Christ allowed it to be planted upon, set it upon this earth? Why is it here in this location? I want to give you three reasons. I want you to turn with me to them. I know I don't turn much. I don't flip much as I say, but I want you to see each of these. Go back with me to the book of John. John chapter 4 is where we're going to arrive first. John chapter 4, we need to understand that the church is here. Now, I may be here for something different, although I ought not be, but the church is here in this locale because it wants to exalt the Savior. He wants to exalt the Savior. Look at the discussion. Jesus, of course, has entered into Samaria. He's entered into a discussion with a woman there. I'll pick up in verse 21. And Jesus saith unto her, Believe me, that the hour cometh when, when you shall neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, and you know not what ye worship. For salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when true worshipers... It's what the church does. It gathers together for this purpose. When true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, the Father seeketh such to worship Him. Oh, I can be a Christian and say, well, I'm a disciple of, I'm a follower of Christ. I'm even Christ-like. Those people worship God. I can't sit back at my home in my easy chair and say, well, I'm going to worship God. I'm worshiping God all my life. Everything I do is worship and such as that. Uh, and I'm going to follow Him. I'm going to, but I won't worship. I won't really worship. I won't spend time in worship. Can't say that. And you know the next verse is the most familiar one. He says, for God is a spirit, verse 24. And they that worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. That's what the saints do. That's what is set forth for the church to do. Number one, to exalt the Savior. Number two, we not only exalt the Savior, you could also see this one, and that is the church is set forth to edify the saints. I want you to go to another passage. Go with the book of Ephesians now. In Ephesians chapter 4, and we're not going to read the whole of this, but if you back up into verse 1, he tells us many things that he has endured, the way that he has to suffer long, the way he has to endeavor to be a part of God. In verse 4 through 6, about the ones, we would refer to them as the seven ones, but just go all the way down to verse 12 for time. It says this, For the perfecting of the saints. Now it's talking about all these people that are inclusive and are part of the church. For the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. 
So why, why is the church here? To exalt the Savior and to edify the saint. Now, that's again, that's part of Hebrews 10 and verse 25. I beg people to give more context to it, at least verse 22 to 30. But Hebrews 10, 25 tells us about how we gather together to exhort one another. Same idea, to lift up one another. Edify. I would encourage us to know also, and I don't just want to leave this one dry in here, you could also say that it's here, we're here to equip the saints. Because when he says to make full proof of your ministry, backing up, also to perfect the saints, that is, those saints are being taught. They're learning. They're growing. It's all a part of what we do in worship. We exalt the Savior. We, if you will, edify and equip the saints. And then the last one here, we cannot overlook, we likewise evangelize the sinners. I didn't take time to look because I forgot, and I doubt I can see from here, but there was, and there probably still is, some sort of a, a sign or some sort of decor over your door that reminds you when you go out of this building at least that the world, the harvest, is out there on the other side. We know what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, beginning really, I would back up to verse 16 for this, but going all the way through verse 20, he talks about the authority that he has. He talks about how we are to go you therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Mark's account is very similar, although it doesn't speak of all nations, it speaks of going unto every creature. That's what the church does. You say, well, that's outside these walls. Friends, that's inside these walls. I chose my wording carefully. We're to evangelize the sinner. The sinner doesn't just have to be outside of this brick and mortar. There's sinners here. There's sinners standing right where I am. Probably one in your seat from time to time. We're here to evangelize. And I use the word evangelize carefully too. It is, comes forth from the Greek word euangelion, which is the good news, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It means to speak well of. That's why the church is here. Number one, and that'll be the longest of these points, I'll assure you. We have to, first of all, in that case, find our hearts. Go back to our text, Matthew chapter 16. Not only do we find our hearts, he says in that, if any man will come after me, the next phrase says, let him deny himself. What does that mean? We not only have to do that, we have to focus our hearts. That means we've got to take our minds, put them on something that's ahead, in this case, Jesus, in this case, heaven, if you will, Put our minds and focus them on something ahead of us so that we will have some sort of a hope, some sort of desire, some sort of future. You say, well, how, how does he talking about focusing our heart? He says to deny ourself. That is, I have to take my eyes off myself and put them on God. Again, we're going to turn again. Go to the book of Colossians, and you'll know right where I'm headed when I get to it. But go to the book of Colossians for just a moment. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. If you then be risen with Christ, seek the things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Now, well, for me, well, verse 2 for sure. And set your affection on things above, not on things of this earth. 4, verse 3. For ye are dead, and your life which is hid in Christ in God. Verse 4. And when Christ who is our pastime, who is our enjoyment, our pleasure, 
with Christ who is our life. What does that imply? I'm dead without him. Paul told Timothy about a woman who was dead while she liveth. Why? She lived in pleasures. That wasn't pleasure in God. That was the pleasures of this life. Pleasures of herself. Things she could produce herself. Setting our affection on things above because that is our life. Now, let me divide this into two areas. Number one, I want you to notice the declarations. What did others say, if you will? What did others have to say about how focused we need to be on Christ? That's the point. We need to focus our hearts. Go with me to the book of Psalms for just a moment. When you get there, go to Psalm chapter 39 and look, if you will, in verse 1. He says, O Lord, rebuke me not in thy wrath, and neither chasten me with hot uh, displeasure. He said, For the arrows stick fast in me, and thy hand presses me sore. For there is no soundness in my flesh. What do you mean? Because of thine anger, if there be any rest in my bones, it is because of my sin. For my iniquities are gone to me, and my head and heavy burden, and they are too heavy for me. And my wounds stink and are corrupt and cause of foolishness. For I am troubled and bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day. Now, I'm just establishing there, this is the mindset. This is the way that David feels. He feels like there is nothing. Look at verse 9, though. Lord, all my desire is before thee. Everything I desire to have, everything I desire to do, everything I desire to learn, and on and on we can name, all of that is in thee. Now, I brought us to that chapter there just so we could reflect across the page a little bit more. Look what he says in Psalm 32. He says this in verse 1, As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so my soul panteth after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God and for the living God who shall come and appear before God. I've got a problem here lately. I don't know what it is. Well, I know what it is. I don't know why it is. I'm thirsty just about all the time. I mean, when I get ready to go to bed, I fix the tallest glass of water I can. That's about all I drink is water. The tallest glass of water I can fix. And I down that and I set it down there on the counter beside the sink and I go to my bedroom. And if I'm not asleep, which I ne never am, if I'm not asleep in five minutes, guess where I've got to go? Back in there to refill the same glass to drink the more water and do it again. Guess what I do at two or three o'clock in the morning? I get up, I go get more water, and I drink it again. I get up in the morning, I drink more water, and I drink it again. You say, well, water's pretty good for you. I hope it is. I'm thirsty. I probably drink 20 glasses of water in a 24-hour period. What if every time I got thirsty, I, I drank from this word? But that's the type of desire that David had. That's the way that he had fixed his focus. He had focused his heart. He had focused his mind upon God. Let's think about someone else. We've got David. Let's move the New Testament for the Apostle Paul. You're familiar with what Paul had to say in Philippians, for example. Look what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3. He says in verse 13, For brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are before and reaching forth into those things which are before. I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. 
Paul said, what am I going to do? I'm going to set myself up to put all the past behind me, which could be good or bad, positive or negative, and I'm going to set myself toward God, and I'm going to press on toward that mark. Takes focus. Now, whether Paul be the writer of the book of Hebrews or not, I would not argue with you at this point, but in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, here's what that writer says. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. What does it mean? It means I've got to be focused. Sometimes my best efforts to stick with and to focus on God need to be readjusted. Number one, find your heart. Number two, focus your heart. Number three, go back to our main text here in Matthew chapter 16. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, the next phrase, and take up his cross and follow me. Now, what do you mean take up his cross? Well, each one of us, we know this, each one of us have a burden to bear. There's something in everyone's life, everyone's life, no matter what, there's something in everyone's life that for them is a burden. It is difficult to stand under. It's difficult to move through. And for you, it may be an ingrown toenail. For another person, it may be cancer. There's, there's, there's a wide array of that. Everyone has a burden. Everyone's burdens need to be bore. That's why in Galatians chapter 1, I mean, sorry, Galatians chapter 6, we're told, bear ye one another's burdens, so fulfill the law. He says, I need you to not only deny yourself, that is focus, but I need you to fix yourself, that is to bear up under this cross. And what I mean by fix is the idea of asphyxion. It's the idea of fixing my mind on something to the point, I will not move. Now, this may be the place where many of us have difficulty. Sure, we, we know where our heart is. We found it. Yes, we're focused on God. But are we fixed on God to the point we cannot be moved? The psalmist tells us about a tree that was planted, planted beside the waters, and it goes on, we sing the song too, I shall not be moved. Now, is there anyone out to move us? You say, well, that's obvious. Satan is out to move us. That's true. But guess what? Sometimes our own families are out to move us. Sometimes our own friends are out to move us. They're trying to get us off kilter of where we are and fixed with the Lord. You put in your margin Matthew chapter 10. Do some reading around that here, verse 34 through 39. Jesus said, I'm not come. He said, I'm come to bear a sword. He goes on to talk about how mothers and fathers and fathers and sons and, and mother-in-laws and daughters-in-laws, all these people will be at variance with one another. Why? Because some of them will try to live faithfully. Others will know nothing of that or want to have nothing to do with that. And they're going to be standing against it, each other. There's going to be variance between them. Some sort of divide. The question will be, am I really fixed on the Lord? Paul said in Philippians 1.21, you could quote this along with me, for me to live is Christ, yet to die is gain. It occurred to me, and I'm not claiming this occurred to me a long time ago, it occurred to me last night about 1 o'clock, or this morning about 1 o'clock. When Paul wrote that, he expected to die. He said, well, I expect to die. I mean, maybe I'll die in my sleep. No, Paul expected to be murdered. He said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. You say, well, there's an easy side of that then. He's saying if I die, no matter what, what way, which for him would ultimately be murder, 
That would be gain. I can gain heaven. Do you know what Paul's dying, as well as Peter's dying, as well as John's dying, as well as all of them, including Christ's dying, all those apostles, and anyone since who has been martyred for that cause, you know what their dying has done for the cause of Christ? Their blood has been the ink written on the pages that we read. I haven't had this opportunity. I would hope that if I did, I would take advantage of it. If I were able to get on national TV, I mean NBC, ABC, CBS, and you name the others, and I would able to preach on national TV, I would, I would pray that I would preach against many of the things that are going on in our world. I would preach against homosexuality, plainly from the Scriptures. I would preach against abortion, plainly from the Scriptures. I would preach against Muslim and Islam religions and other religions that are false to God, plainly from the Scriptures. But you know what I would get out of that? I'll put it bluntly, I'd probably get my brains blowed out. But you know how many people would remember my sermon after that, if I die? A whole lot more. Paul knew he had a burden to bear, and that burden was the burden that he had in his life, but more so the burden that Christ gave him. He said he wanted to know Jesus by the power of his resurrection. Well, what is involved in resurrection? You've got to die first. You've got to die to live. So we must fix our focus. Let me turn you to another passage here. Go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Just listen to these verses here. Hebrews 11 and verse 32 to begin with. The writer here comes down and says, And what shall I say then? For the time will fail me to tell you of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, also of Samuel and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of the fire, and escaped the edge of the sword. But out of weakness were made strong. They waxed valiant in fight and turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women who received their dead and were raised to life again. Now that sounds great. If a faithful child of God could do any or all of that, that sounds great. Look at the next two words. To me, they're the pivotal point of this chapter. And others you see it's the and others that'll get you and others were tortured not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection they had a trial of cruel mockings and scourging yea more in the bonds of imprisonment they were stoned they were sawn asunder i'm in verse 37 they were tempted they were slain to the sword they wandered around in sheepskins and goatskins and destitute and afflicted and torment of whom the world was not worthy and wandered in the deserts and the mountains and the dens and in the caves of the earth and all these having obtained a good report through faith having received not the promise god having provided the same better think that they would have been without than should not be made perfect now i just want you to look on one or two of these we understand what it means to have a sword to come upon us. We understand what it means to, to be destitute and without food. Just look at one right here. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins. You say, well, wait a minute. Didn't John wear camel hair? Sound like they had some pretty adequate clothing. No. The practice of that day was to take a fresh sheep or goatskin to strap it upon an individual, sort of in the, in the sense of the straight jacket would be, maybe tying from the back, 
pull it as taut as they could. Now, this is a fresh skin. And put them out in the deserts and let them wander because here's what happened. As those skins dried, they shrank. And as they shrank, the body was stifled out. They suffocated. That's the end of others. That's the kind of things we could or must be at least prepared to be involved in. That's about fixing our focus. In Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, you find out an account that begins about two Bible characters. One of them is named James. James is put into prison. James is killed. The very latter part of that chapter, verses 6 through 9, chapter 12, verses 6 through 9, talk about Peter. Peter put into prison. Someone prays on Peter's behalf. An angel comes, takes him by the hand, says, put your shoes on, you're leaving. He comes out, he hadn't been touched. Why did James die? Why did Peter live? You say, well, probably Peter was more faithful than James. No, there's no nothing in the scripture that say that. James was a faithful child of God's. Peter was a faithful child of God's. You can assume, at least I'm assuming this, James probably prayed for deliverance. Peter prays for deliverance. They had to be fixed. James was fixed to the point he would die. Peter was fixed to the point he could live. You're familiar with Matthew 10 and verse 32, 22. You should be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth, that's the key to that verse, endureth to the end shall be saved. Going to have to endure. I must find my heart. True Christians will. I must focus my heart. I must fix my heart. And the last one here. If any man should come unto me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and look at this and follow me. I must follow my heart. Now, I'm the same one. If someone comes up to me and says, you need to let your conscience be your guide. Friends, don't ever let your conscience be your guide unless God is the God of your conscience. Period. There's not one thing that I can do out of just my desires and in my little small voice in my head by myself that's going to make me live a, light, a right life. Nothing. But at the same time, if I found my heart, I focused my heart, and I fixed my heart, guess what I can do now? Now I can follow my heart. I can follow it all the way. What did God call on us to do? Well, first of all, and I'm backing up to recap this, he called on us to lay something down, didn't he? Basically, ourselves, our lives. He called upon us to lift something up. Lift up what? Lift up the burden, sharing the burden of Christ. But then he called on us to live something out. That's the heart of a Christian. One who's ready to live the life God desires. If you're here this morning and you are a child of God, there's no doubt in my mind that in order to do that, you must have obeyed the gospel. You've heard God's word, you believed it. You've had that kind of belief that relies in faith and trust and all of that could be put in that and explain that type of belief as an obedient faith that would do something. You've repented of your sins, you've been baptized. That's the only way you would be a Christian. If you're not that, that's what you need to be. It's more than being religious. It's more than coming to a building several times a week. It's more than being moral. It's more than being spiritual. It's about being a follower of and a Christ-like individual. This word gives us that pattern. But if you're here this morning and you are a child of God's, 
and you may or may not be in the category I find myself in so many times, I just don't have the heart of a Christian. I may have the outward abilities. I may be able to go and, and come and do and, and look like one, but do I have the heart of a Christian? If I don't, I've got to get it. Stop, find my heart, focus it on the Lord, fix it that I will not move, and follow what He requires. That's something that I do every day. I have to. Continually throughout all my life on this side of eternity. If you're here this morning, you're not a child of God. We beg of you to be one. If you are one and you've fallen short, why not come home while together we stand and sing this invitation song?